Welcome to Lend Me Your Ears. I'm Isaac Butler. Today, we're going to be talking about Measure for Measure. It's a play about the law and about why we have laws and how we should go about using the law to make people more virtuous. But it's also about power and about sex. And it's most famous for a scene that feels chillingly relevant to us today. There's this woman, Isabella, and her brother Claudio is condemned to die, so she's pleading for his life. And the guy she's pleading with, Angelo, he's running the joint. It's up to him whether Claudio lives or dies. Angelo has all the power in this situation, and here's how he responds to her request for clemency. Redeem thy brother by yielding up thy body to my will or else he must not only die the death, but thy unkindness shall his death draw out to lingering sufferance. The choice is Isabella's. Have sex with Angelo, or her brother will be tortured to death. Measure for Measure is a play that's asking two very different questions, ones we're still struggling with today. How should the law work? And what do we do about powerful men and their desire to use that power for sexual gratification? Act 1. We must not make a scarecrow of the law. Measure for Measure is often called a problem play. Now, that's a term that comes from the 19th century, from a literary critic named Frederick Boas. And in its original usage, it meant a play that was neither straightforwardly comic nor tragic. Problem plays shift between tones, sometimes quite wildly, and they use this approach to explore social problems and moral dilemmas. And one thing these plays have in common is that every thread you tug on is tied to a paradox. They pose a problem, and instead of coming anywhere close to solving it, they dive into it, revealing more and more problems lurking inside. Measure for Measure can be a bewildering play to read or talk about. Every time you think you've wrapped your head around a clear answer to how the law should work or what we can do about powerful, sexually coercive men, that answer turns to ash. It's a play that's technically a comedy. It tells a story that ends in four couples getting married. But the journey it takes to get there can't help but disturb and provoke us. That journey goes like this. Duke Vincentio, the ruler of Vienna, has a problem. He hasn't been enforcing Vienna's laws, particularly its vice laws. And the results are pure chaos. We have strict statutes and most biting laws, which for this 19 years we have let slip. Our decrees, dead to infliction, to themselves are dead, and liberty plucks justice by the nose. The baby beats the nurse, and quite a thwart goes all decorum. But he knows just the man to handle this problem, his severe and upright deputy, Angelo. The Duke announces that he's skipping town and leaving Angelo in charge. Angelo will crack down on misbehavior and bring the city back under control. But Duke Vincentio wants to watch his protege's progress. So instead of leaving, he stays in Vienna, disguised as a friar. Angelo immediately sets to work. He focuses his attention on enforcing a law that says that premarital sex is punishable by death. One of the first people arrested under Angelo's new regime is a young man named Claudio. Claudio's crime? Well... 
he's gotten his girlfriend pregnant. They love each other. They want to get married. Under the Duke, this wouldn't have been a problem. But Angelo's enforcing the letter of the law. So, now Claudio's in prison, waiting to be executed. His sister, Isabella, goes to Angelo to plead for mercy. Isabella is a novitiate nun. She's a few days away from taking her vows. And she makes the Christian argument that he who is without sin should cast the first stone. Go to your bosom, knock there, and ask your heart what it doth know that's like my brother's fault. If it confess a natural guiltiness such as is his, let it not sound a thought upon your tongue against my brother's life. She says that if Angelo himself feels lust, he cannot execute her brother. That argument turns out to be more apt than she could have possibly predicted, and the results will be disastrous. After Isabella leaves, Angelo realizes that he is filled with desire for her. What's this? What's this? Is this her fault or mine? The tempter or the tempted, who sins most? But Angelo doesn't let Claudio go. Instead, when Isabella comes to Angelo's office again, he offers her that deal we talked about earlier. Have sex with him, and he'll spare her brother's life. Isabella is horrified and threatens to expose Angelo. I will proclaim thee, Angelo. Look for it. Sign me a present pardon from my brother, or with an outstretched throat, I'll tell the world aloud what man thou art. But Angelo is unfazed. Who will believe thee, Isabel? My unsoiled name? The austereness of my life? My vouch against you and my place is a state will so your accusation overweight that you shall stifle in your own report and smell of calumny. Isabella returns to Claudio to give him the bad news. She can only save his life by giving up her chastity. So there's nothing for him to do but prepare for death. Claudio doesn't quite see it that way. Sweet sister, let me live. What sin you do to save a brother's life, nature dispenses with the deed so far that it becomes a virtue. Isabella and Claudio are at an impasse, but fortunately the Duke in his friar disguise overhears them and offers to help. Rather than simply reveal himself and fix everything, however, he decides to try to solve it through farce. First, he reveals that there's a woman named Mariana, an old flame of Angelo's, who is still in love with him. The Duke convinces Isabella to tell Angelo she'll sleep with him. And then they pull a switcheroo and have Mariana take her place when it comes time to do the deed, replacing an unwilling woman with a consenting one. Angelo falls for the trick, but he goes back on his word and orders Claudio killed anyway. So the Duke arranges another switcheroo. He tells the bailiff to send Angelo a different head instead of Claudio's head. And Angelo falls for that trick too. But for reasons that are never entirely clear, the Duke also lets Isabella believe that her brother is dead. In the play's final scene, the Duke takes off his friar's costume and pretends to return to town. He sentences Angelo to death, but Isabella and Mariana plead for mercy. And then, in a single stroke, the Duke resolves every outstanding plot thread. He reveals that Claudio is alive and allows him to marry his pregnant girlfriend. 
he lets Angelo live, but forces him to marry Mariana. And he, the Duke, announces that he will marry Isabella, the character whose chastity was the crux of the play's central conflict. We never find out how she answers. Isabella, one of Shakespeare's most forceful female voices, spends the end of the play in silence. So, you may have noticed something a little peculiar about this ending. There's three major issues the characters are trying to solve in this play. Vienna's in a legal and moral crisis, Isabella wants to maintain her chastity at all costs, and Angelo is a power-abusing hypocrite. At the end of the play, the Duke may have solved the Angelo problem. Angelo's married off, and it's hard to imagine he'll continue being a mover and shaker in Vienna's politics. But we're no closer to figuring out how the laws of Vienna should work. And Isabella, who struggled so hard to maintain her chastity, is forced into a marriage with the very man she turned to for protection. Why does the play end this way? Well, before we can talk about that, we need to understand how the play uses its major characters to express various ideas of how the law and human behavior intersect. Ideas that would have been very familiar to Shakespeare's audience and are still with us today. Act 2. Which is the wiser here, justice or iniquity? Measure for Measure is a play where lofty ideas are brought down to earth and tested, in much the same way the Duke tests Angelo by putting him in charge. One method the play uses to do this is its language. Measure for Measure builds its images out of personification and applying very concrete verbs and adjectives to abstract concepts. Here, for example, is how the Duke describes deputizing Angelo. We have with special soul lent him our terror, dressed him with our love. Terror and love aren't clothing, of course. They're concepts. But in Measure for Measure, they become solid. Nothing remains theoretical in this play. As a result, the characters themselves often feel more like stand-ins for philosophical points of view in an elaborate thought experiment in which the results are ultimately unclear and confusing. Take Angelo. To Shakespeare's audience, Angelo would have been a recognizable type. Here's how the Duke describes him. Lord Angelo is precise, stands at a guard with envy, scarce confesses that his blood flows or that his appetite is more to bread than stone. That word, precise, if you were sitting in the audience in 1604, you would have known that Shakespeare meant that Angelo was a Puritan because Puritans were also called Precisians. We have our own associations with the Puritans now, and some of them overlap with those of Shakespeare's time. Puritans are anti-fun. They're hard-ass Protestant extremists. But in Shakespeare's time, there's something else that's important about them. Here's John Paul Spiro, who teaches the great books at Villanova and is currently working on a book about Measure for Measure. Puritans are social climbers. Puritanism was in many ways associated with a rising middle class. And what we find out about Angelo is he rejected a woman because she didn't have as much money as he thought she was supposed to have. And uh, he has been studying because he wants to rule Vienna one day. This is a guy on the make. Puritans aren't only trying to purify themselves. They're trying to purify the world. They need power to do that. 
As a result, they were a real political and theological force on the rise, and they were the outspoken enemy of the arts. Less than 50 years after Measure for Measure premiered, the Puritans took over the English government, and one of the first things they did is ban the theater. Angelo wants to create heaven on earth, and the way to go about doing that is to outlaw sin, punish people according to the letter of the law, and, essentially, kill your way to a more virtuous society. But giving Angelo the power to actually accomplish this paves the way for him to abuse that power. Angelo's bloodthirsty hypocrisy is no coincidence. The play is saying that the kind of person who likes to be in charge of strict punitive systems is someone who gets off on their own exercise of power. The more our system regulates people's private behavior, the more will attract Angelo's to run it. Isabella is Angelo's main opposition, but her worldview actually starts from the same assumptions as his. The world is a fallen, broken, sinful, disgusting place. It's their solutions that are different. Angelo wants to correct the world through force, but Isabella, a Catholic, wants to withdraw from it entirely. The first thing we see her doing in the play is discussing her upcoming vows with a nun. Have you nuns no farther privileges? I speak not as desiring more, but rather wishing a more strict restraint upon the sisterhood. The garden variety vows of chastity that the convent would impose on her aren't good enough. To Shakespeare's audience, she would embody a kind of archetypal Catholic womanhood. Here's Claire McEachern, a professor of English at UCLA. One of the ways in which Protestant reformers attacked Catholicism was in attacking their pretensions to abstinence that a human being had the power to exempt themselves from sexual identity was, was presumptuous, given that we're all fallen, etc. Often, scholars associate Isabella with the idea of Christian mercy, that we should turn the other cheek against wrongdoers. But what Isabella actually argues for is radical non-intervention by the state. It's not up to Angelo to judge Claudio's sin. It's up to God. And because divine judgment is more important than earthly justice, Isabella refuses to intervene in the one way that she's told will save her brother's life. The soul matters more to her than the body. Then, Isabel, live chaste, and brother, die. More than our brother is our chastity. If Claudio confesses and is absolved before he dies, he gets to go to heaven. So his death just isn't that big a deal to Isabella. She's surprised to learn, however, that Claudio's death is a big deal to Claudio. Oh, Isabel. What says my brother? Death is a fearful thing. And shamed life a hateful. Aye, but to die and go we know not where? Tis too horrible. The weariest and most loathed worldly life that age, ache, penury, and imprisonment can lay on nature is a paradise to what we fear of death. Isabella promises Claudio he can get into heaven. And his response is, thanks, but no thanks. This gives us very clearly the two major problems with Isabella's worldview and its approach to the law. The first is that very few people are so confident of their place in the afterlife that they're not afraid of death. 
The second problem is that you can't make a just society if you don't care about worldly affairs. The cost of Isabella's hermitage is her brother's life. There's no actual politics or justice in her position. It's an abdication of our responsibility to each other. And one thing Measure for Measure points out again and again is that our choices affect other people. When Isabella refuses to sleep with Angelo, Angelo asks, Were not you then as cruel as the sentence that you have slandered so? And when Claudio asks Isabella to go through with it and sleep with Angelo, she responds, Is not a kind of incest to take life from thine own sister's shame? Claudio's position here is simpler. He's not particularly devout. He just wants to get married, and he seems like a good enough guy. But he's trapped in a power struggle between two religious extremists, one Protestant, the other Catholic. Shakespeare's audience might well have felt a lot like Claudio. Many marriages at this time, including Shakespeare's own, were caused by accidental pregnancies. And England had been trapped in an ongoing underground religious war during Shakespeare's life. Catholicism was illegal. The Pope had excommunicated Queen Elizabeth and encouraged Catholics to overthrow her. Elizabeth had Catholic missionaries publicly executed, sometimes in quite drawn-out and bloodthirsty ways. Tensions between the Crown and Catholics continued into the reign of James I, and those tensions would nearly explode, literally, a year after Measure for Measure premiered, thanks to the gunpowder plot. So, Shakespeare's audience was itself caught between Catholic and Protestant religious extremists. The Puritans were on the rise in politics, and the Catholics were an ever-present boogeyman threatening their way of life. It's hard not to sympathize with Claudio's position. Uh, In much the same way I think in our era, you can think that our era is filled with political zealots as well as, to a certain degree, religious zealots. What you'll find when you look closer is there's a small number of very loud people who are dominating the discourse. And a lot of people are there in the middle and would rather not have to take sides so much. Claudio, he, he seems to be monogamous. He seems to want to just live a very simple life. He, he's not really concerned with theological things. And then when pressed on theological things, his point is, I don't really know. I mean, nobody really knows what happens when you die. So I'm scared of it. But Claudio's laissez-faire approach to politics and the social order only really works if people are decent to begin with. And Measure for Measure makes this clear by including Claudio's good friend Lucio. Lucio has an 18-month-old child with a prostitute named Kate Keepdown, and he has no intention of marrying her or, it appears, supporting his kid. Measure for Measure points out that when people aren't decent, The person who suffers in an unregulated social order is the person with less power, and that person is often going to be a woman. Lucio gets to be the charming comic relief of the play. His baby mama, meanwhile, never even appears in Measure for Measure. Lucio only does right by Kate when the Duke forces him to marry her at the end of the play, alongside the other couples. So, the puritanical approach doesn't work. Withdrawal from politics doesn't work. Just leaving people alone to live their lives doesn't work. But there's another way we try to solve these problems today, and that's through a reasonable, balanced, and judicious approach to the law. What if the people of Vienna just took testimony to determine the truth and considered mitigating factors? What if they tried for just, balanced solutions? Well, it turns out the play has a character who operates that way too. 
a judge named Aeschylus, which literally means balance. He tries to get to the truth, and he's interested in changing behavior, not punishing people. But there's just one little problem with Aeschylus's approach. It's useless. He reminds me of those characters in Moliere's plays who are very moderate and judicious and reasonable, and nobody listens to them. But there's one character who isn't ineffectual in the play, and that's the Duke. So what are we to make of this man, who's the most powerful person in Vienna, but spends most of Measure for Measure in hiding? Act 3. Your Grace, Like Power Divine. Duke Vincentio is one of Shakespeare's great mystery men. His actions precipitate both the play's crisis, when he puts Angelo in charge of Vienna, and its resolution. Yet he's also by far Measure for Measure's most enigmatic character. Like Henry Bolingbroke in Richard II, he never gives a soliloquy that explains his motivations. And what he winds up doing in the play has little obvious connection to the problem of figuring out how to properly enforce Vienna's laws. He really is the Duke of Dark Corners. It's like you just don't know if he's got a plan. It's it's hard to kind of sort of feel like, okay, the Duke is trying to test or scourge or, you know, purify certain individuals um, because he himself seems to be doing things in a very kind of ad hoc way. The Duke spends as much of the play as he possibly can avoiding direct action. It's only when his disguise is removed and everyone realizes that he was the friar all along that he finally intervenes, ordering the marriages that end the play. Yet, at the same time, the Duke seems to know everything about the city of Vienna and its citizens. If Angelo is Puritanism and Isabella Catholicism, Claudio an everyman and Aeschylus a secular liberal, could it be that the Duke, who sees all and works in mysterious ways and only occasionally directly intervenes in the affairs of man, could it be that he's God? If we're going to be straight allegorical, he represents something along the lines of divine justice, right? Because he he's basically uh, omniscient. He knows everything that you've been doing. Um, and his goal is ultimately to forgive, probably. Uh, but there's definitely some hardness to him as well. So he's he's often aligned with a kind of divine justice. But he might have reminded Shakespeare's audience of someone else, their new ruler, King James, who ascended the throne in 1603. The Duke, in becoming the friar, becomes both a ruler and a religious authority at the same time. James, of course, ruled both the nation of England and the Church of England, And in a political tract James published at exactly the time Shakespeare was writing Measure for Measure, the king warned that the laws of England had been neglected and needed tightening. But if the Duke is either God or King James, the portrait of authority that emerges from the play is hardly flattering. The Duke is a liar. He doesn't particularly seem to like his subjects, and his strategies regularly fail. He seems desperate to be liked and to hear flattering things about himself. The authority in the play, like the authority in Shakespeare's England, is in the process of passing from religious figures to secular ones. In Measure for Measure, the Duke allows the religious authority figures to make a hash out of everything and then rides back in at the end. 
With his actions in the final scene, he's essentially saying this. I am going to solve all of your problems. I decide who lives. I decide who dies. I decide what people are allowed to say, who marries whom, etc. And I'm doing this entirely as a secular person using his reason and judgment and personal feelings, right? I'll use religion as a kind of buttress or talk uh, for the way I justify certain things, but it is not necessary. The power is completely returned to the state authority, which is now going to tell people how they're supposed to live. Of course, whether he's a secular authority or a divine one, we're still left with the solution the Duke comes up with, marrying everybody off. So what are we supposed to make of that? Well, if you think the big problem facing Vienna is premarital sex, then this is a kind of solution. With the wave of his hand, the Duke makes premarital sex into marital sex. But premarital sex isn't the problem the Duke says he's trying to solve at the beginning of the play. That problem was about figuring out how to properly enforce the law so his subjects would behave. Instead of doing that, the Duke has shifted the regulatory responsibility from the state onto a social institution. This might seem like a strange choice, but the idea that marriage solves social problems and should therefore be encouraged by the state isn't some antiquated notion from a bygone era. Enforcing and incentivizing traditional family values has been a rallying cry for the American right since the Reagan Revolution. The play leaves it totally ambiguous as to whether we're supposed to buy this solution or not. It's something that's up to the director. And usually, productions tell us how we should think about these marriages by highlighting Isabella's reaction to being told she has to marry the Duke. Sometimes it's played like the Duke really is right, and his solution works. The law can't really solve Vienna's problems, but marriage can, and the Duke's proposal makes Isabella happy. According to critic Helen Shaw, that was the choice made in a recent production by Brooklyn-based theater company Theater for a New Audience. They had Jonathan Cake. He's just a very warm actor. He's very, very, very sweet. And so the end of the play, you were like, who wouldn't marry Jonathan Cake? But what if instead you decided to stage the end of the play to underline Isabella's unhappiness? So that's another way to take it, which is that her silence at the end is the silence of a woman who realizes that the system is so weighted against her that any success she has is a success that simply gets her to a higher level of predator. And that's why that's the contemporary reading, because that is the lived experience of (laughs) of women uh, today, is that if you have success, uh, say, in the entertainment industry, it just gets you into a different hotel room with a different predator. In this version of the ending, what the Duke's done is pulled yet another switcheroo. Only this time, he hasn't hoodwinked Angelo. He's hoodwinked us. And he's hoodwinked Isabella, using the pretext of helping her to trap her. Whether you bluster through it happily or highlight Isabella's complete loss of voice, the ending of Measure for Measure still can't answer the play's own questions. We are no closer to figuring out what to do about powerful sexual predators or about how the law should be used to make us better people. So why is this play telling this story about the government and individual behavior, about power and the patriarchy, about sex and authority, 
so interested in making us feel lost and confused. Act 4. I Hope Hear the Truths. In Measure for Measure, sex, power, and the law intersect, and the results are about as easy to make coherent as an overturned plate of spaghetti. When the play's over, we're just left feeling kind of bad. Or as Claire McEckern puts it, I mean, the play kind of enforces all kinds of impotence upon the audience. It's not just the audience that feels this way. The scholar A.P. Rossiter wrote that Measure for Measure is a play where we are made to feel the pain of the distressing, disintegrating possibilities of human meanness. All the firm points of view fail. The Duke himself even articulates this failure of firm points of view in the play. There is scarce truth enough alive to make society secure, but security enough to make fellowships accursed. Much upon this riddle runs the wisdom of the world. Sometimes writing or thinking about this play can feel a bit like trying to escape a black hole. Why is that? So Shakespeare's moral universe is a closed universe. And what I mean by that is that his plays, they show you a world that has been disordered and then needs to return to order. And so the reason why we get so troubled and freaked out is that the order reads to us as so corrupt that it does not seem preferable to the disorder that preceded it. There is order, but there is no comfort. And that is scarier than disorder, because disorder you think can be solved, but order that is wrong is deeply troubling. And this is one of the play's many ironies. It's the state's efforts to impose this order on people that makes its shortcomings visible. This is what happens when we try to use the government to force our morality on others. It backfires, making the flaws in our own codes of virtue obvious. But the flaws in the system of order and measure for measure are only really visible to us watching and reading the play. I mean, it's a crazy law. No one ever says, why don't we redo the law? Um, the, the answer is always, why don't we be very careful about how we apply the law and take into question, you know, motives and intentions and actual consequences before we make a judgment. None of the characters can imagine changing the law because none of them are able to see outside the frame of their own society and values. In fact, when the failures of their assumptions become visible, the only response anyone has is silence. The play is obsessed with silence. The play is so filled with people not being sure of what other people believe or even what they themselves believe, people not speaking the truth, people not being able to articulate things, that now I think it particularly resonates for an audience for them to see these women who are not believed, who are told to shut up, who are told that they don't know what's best for them, who are, who are then effectively silenced throughout the play. Because it's on stage, and because it's been a few centuries, we can see that the laws in Measure for Measure are absurd and ineffective, and the puritanical mindset necessary to enforce them is a hypocritical menace. But Measure for Measure forces us to ask, What frames are we trapped inside? What problems are impossible for us to solve because our assumptions won't allow us to? 
we might not be stuck in the particular ways that the characters in this play are stuck. But we still don't really know how much the law should regulate private behavior. And we don't really know what to do about a world set up by and for the benefit of men. A world where men always seem to have the last word. Measure for Measure can't solve those problems. All it can do is highlight them for us with Isabella's pointed silence. What is it about the just the setup of the play that means that the play will never be resolvable? I think that the reason why we haven't sorted out how we feel about the play is because we ourselves have not figured out what we're supposed to do with the state and with our bodies. I'd like to thank my guests for this week's episode, John Paul Spiro, Claire McEckern, and Helen Shaw. You've been listening to Emily gardner Shoe hall as Isabella, Daryl Lathan as Claudio, Sid Solomon as Angela, and Jordi Broadwater as the Duke. If you're a subscriber to Slate Plus, there's a bonus episode waiting for you right now featuring Virginia Heffernan and Julia Turner in conversation about Measure for Measure and politics today. If you're not a Slate Plus member, sign up at slate.com slash Shakespeare. If you'd like to read ahead, our next episode is about Othello. It drops September 11th. Special thanks to David Kasten and Slate's very own Sam Adams. Our podcast is produced by Chow Tu, and Slate Plus's editorial director is that notorious benefactor, Gabriel Roth. I'm Isaac Butler. Thank you so much for listening.